Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we began to talk several weeks ago about examining the foundation of our lives. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that near the end, we're at the very end, that there's going to come a time when God is going to cause a shaking in the earth. And the purpose of that shaking is to separate out that which is of the kingdom of God from that which is not of the kingdom of God. And I believe that that's true out in the world, but it's also true in our lives. And prior to whatever, whenever that shaking comes, whether it's coming now or not, I don't know. But we, we in our own lives go through times of shaking. There's times in our life when everything's just going right, you know. The dog loves you. The cat sits in your lap. Your wife smiles at you. The kids love you, you know. Everything's just going great, you know. They love you at work and just, you know, you're just on top of the world. And, and at those times, we just kind of rest back and just kind of coast. And I've found in my life that I don't grow very much in those times. They're wonderful times, but I don't really grow in those times. But then you can be just kind of going along and all of a sudden, you know, everything seems to be turned upside down. And you don't know what happened. Why did it happen? And it takes a while even to get your... And it doesn't always have to be a big climactic thing or catastrophic thing. It can just be uh, you hit a bump and things get rattled around. And, and, and so, but God will use those times. He may not cause them, but He'll use those to give us an opportunity to examine our lives and see what have I been building my life on? Because every day and really every moment every day, you're establishing a foundation in your life. And the question is, is it the right foundation? Is it a sure foundation, a certain foundation? And that's the title of this series. And we looked in Hebrew in, in first, 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul challenges the church at Corinth to examine themselves, to see whether they're in the faith. And we're being challenged, I believe, to examine ourselves to see what is the foundation of my life. What have I been building my life on? Because this may be the, I mean, may need to, to rip up some things and which is God is working on in my life and establish a new foundation. And we looked in Matthew chapter 7 with that powerful parable that Jesus tells about the two men that built, each man had built a house. Same, same contractor, same design. The same materials came from the same lumber yard, the same shipment. Everything was the same. And a storm comes against both of those houses, and one of them stood and the other fall. And we saw that the only difference was the foundation on which they, those houses were built. One was built on a rock, and the other was built on the sand. And I told you the story of my grandfather building his retirement house on the South Jersey shore. And, of course, it's all sand down there. And uh, whereas his neighbors built their, laid their, their, uh, uh, the, 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 their foundation just on the sand of the, on the ground, which was sand, my grandfather had more foresight, and he had the contractor drive pilings down deep in the sand, and they fastened the foundation, they fastened the, the frame of the house to those pilings, not resting and trusting it on the sand. And I lived literally through a hurricane there where I saw houses washed away because the sand underneath the houses undermined the, 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 the slab and the slab collapsed, the house collapsed and was washed out to sea. But with all of that, my grandfather's house, and I'm very glad because we were all in it, stood strong. Why? Because the sand around it washed away, but it wasn't founded on the sand. It was founded on those pilings. And then Jesus explains to us what the difference in the foundation is. He said, He who hears my words and does not do them shall be like the man that builds his house on a sand. He's building a house. That's the hearing of the word. But the foundation on which he's building it isn't based on a commitment to do what the word says. Whereas the wise man is the man who hears the word and then goes out and does that. And actually, if you look in James, we're not going to take the time to go there, in James chapter 2, one and two together combined, basically says that if you hear the word and don't do it, you really didn't hear it. If you don't hear the word with the intention of applying it in your life, then you don't really hear it. It won't impact your life. God's plan is that His Word have an impact in our life. In fact, more than an impact, that it literally be the foundation of our life. 
It's not hearing it. It's not coming to church. It's not listening to CDs. It's not watching Christian TV. It's not having three Bibles under your arm. It's not having bumper stickers all over your car. It's not having your refrigerator covered with scriptures. All those are great, but if you don't do what they say, they don't do any good. They won't change your life. They won't impact you. And actually what we've seen is not just doing them, it's having, an, having given God's Word a place in your life where it is the authority in your life. So when circumstances arise or a political position is taken or, or the, the, popular, the popular view of the world goes a different direction than it, than it has gone before, what are we going to do? And that's really where we are today. Because I've been raised in a generation, and most of you have been raised in a generation, where the world, at least this nation, basically believes along the lines of the, of the Ten Commandments and the basic foundation of Christian faith. They may not all be Christians, they may not be believers, but at least the moral standard for the world, for our, for our life, has coincided primarily with the Ten Commandments. Those things that God says don't do are just wrong. And, and so, but we're now living in a time when that's shifting, when the standards of the world and the standards of society, no, in fact, they no longer even want to have the Ten Commandments shown. They must be pretty dangerous if you can't post them. I love when Mario Babarsi was here earlier this year. The Bible cover that he had says, most dangerous book, banned in 32 nations. It must be dangerous if people are afraid of it. And then Ten Commandments must be dangerous if people are afraid to have them posted. What it is, is we don't want to be reminded of God's standard. So if we remove it from our courts, if we remove it from our classrooms, if we remove it out, then we won't be reminded. But God doesn't forget them. It doesn't change them. Just because you're not looking at them, that's kind of like the ostrich who sticks his head in the ground and thinks there's no problem. Now, of course, the most vulnerable part of him is still exposed. And that's kind of where we are. But here's the point. As these standards change, and they're changing at a rapid rate, then what are we going to believe? What is our younger generation going to believe? And part of what triggered me to begin to look at this is realizing in our younger generation, in the church, in this church, many of the things that we as older Christians would be adamant about, they'll question and wonder, why do we believe that? Well, the reason I believe it is because God's Word says so. Whether the nation agrees with this, or the world agrees with it, or my mother-in-law agrees with it, or my, you know, anybody agrees with it, it doesn't change what that Word says, and that's what I'm endeavoring to base my life on. But many of our young people have been raised in homes where that's not been the standard, and as a result, they're governing what's right and wrong by what the world's telling us is right and wrong, and it's not hearing from God anymore. So we need to go back and reestablish this foundation. It's not just doing what the Bible says. It's having an attitude that I am going to, that, the, that my decisions are based on what God says, not what I think is right. And so we began to look a few weeks ago at what it is, what kinds of things do we build as the foundation of our life that are not what God has prescribed for us. And the first thing we looked at comes out of Second uh, Corinthians chapter four. It says, "Well, we walk not by sight." Faith, by, uh, chapter five says, "We walk not by faith, sight, but by faith." But chapter four says, "We look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. Thing, seen refer to what our five senses detect." And so what Paul is telling the church there is that if you're basing your life on your senses, your senses are telling you what's true from what's not true. Now again, as I cautioned you before, when you get out on the highway, you better trust your senses, because, but you're not dealing in spiritual issues there, you're dealing in natural things. You can trust your senses when it comes to you know, what you're eating. If you, if you look at something in the back of the refrigerator and pull it and says, you know, I don't know if this is any good, and you take a spoonful and your nose tells you, whoa, I don't know how long that's been there. Trust your senses. Don't eat it. But when it comes to the things of God and the spiritual things, we're not to be trusting our senses primarily, especially if they disagree with what God's Word says. Then we looked at reasonings. And we're kind of talking about an offshoot of reasonings. You know, when we get into our reasonings or traditions of man, 
We saw Jesus said the traditions of man, which is my own ideas of what God is like, my own ideas of what God would do, my own ideas of who I am, my own ideas of my rights, my own ideas, and then what we in the church have done is we blend with God's Word. So we take God's Word and then we add to it, we adjust it, we make little additions here, and the moment we do that, it becomes a tradition of man and no longer the Word of God. And Jesus says, the traditions of man make the Word of God of no effect. It doesn't water it down. It makes it of no effect. Why? Because the moment I add my ideas and my traditions to God's Word, then it's no longer God's Word. It's now my Word taking God's Word and using for my purposes. And then we began to look last week at two ditches that kind of go together. And by ditches, what I'm referring to is if you go out on a country road that doesn't have a shoulder to the road. In the cities, we have curbs and we have uh, shoulders to the road that will tell you that you're not on the road anymore. You've bumped up against the curb. But out in the country, at least in other parts of the world, in the nation, if you get off the main paved highway, you get off into a ditch. And, and, and those ditches, will, are, will in some cases, they can be very dangerous. And I told you that when I was teaching our children how to drive, especially our younger ones, the problem with learning how to drive is not so much, you know, steering straight as it is to know, especially when you're learning to drive in city traffic, what's the the right-hand, since the driver's side on this country is on the left-hand side, I've got to know, how do I know what the right-hand edge of that car is? Because I can't just look, I can look out this window to the left and see where it is, but I can't see to the right. So to train my children, what I did is I would take them out on some road where it went light when there's no traffic where that had a, had a shoulder but not, wasn't paved, and I would have them just slowly go over until it hit the, that side, and they could tell because the wheel would shake, and they would get a sense of where that was. And so when your life is going along and all of a sudden it's starting to shake like that, that's a sign that you're getting off the main road and you're beginning to head into a ditch. And we need to look and begin to make the adjustments to get back on that road. Well, on a, these highway roads, there's a, there's a ditch on either side. And so, and they're both ditches. And they're both off the road. And so we began to look last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul mentions when he's talking about what we're basing our life on, what we're trusting in, two distinct ditches, two mistakes, two foundations that we're very tempted to base our life on, but which are not solid and are not firm. And we'll pick up with uh, verse 20. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Go back to verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not come to know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. In those two verses, Paul is talking about three different ways to come to God. Three different ways to build your foundation of your spiritual life. Two of them are wrong and don't work. They're the two ditches. One of them we saw, sees in verse 22. He says, for the Jews seek after a sign. The Jews were miracle-oriented. And God is a God of miracles. And Jesus performed signs and wonders. The apostles performed signs and wonders. God still has performed signs and wonders. And we talked last week about what a sign is. A sign is something that tells you the direction and how close you are to a goal or a destination. But the sign is not that destination. It's not the thing itself. And so we use the example of trying to go to Boston, which is about 60 miles from here. Somewhere up Route 95, you're going to find a sign that's going to say, Boston, 30 miles, or something like that. 
And that sign tells you you're going the right direction and it tells you how close you are to that destination. But that sign is not Boston. And so the sign is not what we're to put our trust in. It just shows you somewhere. It points to a direction. It has a perk. can't push your trust in that sign. I mean, somebody may have painted on the sign. So instead of 30 miles, it might have been 80 and they wiped out the left-hand side of the 8. So, you, you, you know, signs are great as long as it's the right sign and pointing the right direction. And what he was saying is the Jews had learned to put their trust in signs. Prove us something. And we looked over in Matthew in John chapter 6 where Jesus talked to them because he'd been feeding, he just fed 5,000 men and the women and children along with them. Then he got in the boat, sent the disciples to the other side. Then he got walked on the water to go to the other side. There's a storm. The next day, these people get up and realize the disciples have gone. They saw them go in a boat, but Jesus remained, and he's not there. So they all get in boats, and they go over, and they find him, and they're seeking after him. And it said they wanted to make him king because of the, he was feeding them and performing miracles. And Jesus said, you seek after me because of the food. And then they said, well, what should we seek here? What is it we are to do to do the works of God? And he said, the work of God is to believe on him whom he sent. You seek after signs. You believe because of the things you see. And so God does signs. God does miracles. We're going to hear some miracles. I believe when Christopher Alam is here, and I'm trusting, we're going to see some miracles. But our faith in God cannot be based on miracles alone because if it is, we're walking by sight and not by faith. We looked at some of those signs last week. Some of them are like a fleece, and I'm not going to go into what that is. A fleece, like by Gideon, used a fleece to discern God's will. Open and closed doors. And all of those are trusting in some natural event as a sign of whether this is God's will or not. And the problem is Satan is the God of this world. Those natural things are very much under his dominion and control, although God can intervene. So when you say, you know, if, if this is God's the job God has for me, then the phone's going to ring three times in the next five minutes. The devil can get three people to call you. Well, he could get three telemarketers to call you. We know that. And if you're a telemarketer, forgive me, but you know. So, I mean, we're, 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 it's not what the Bible says it should be the foundation of our, of our relationship with God. And then we ended by looking at, and miracles can be that way. God performs miracles. Jesus had performed miracles, but they were putting their trust, their faith was because they had to see miracles. The problem is, when your trust is in something that's based of your senses, you've always got to see more. You've always got to have a reassurance. If you're constantly needing to be reassured of God's love for you and your stand for you, your foundation is not the Word of God. Your foundation is your senses, your experiences. You're building your life on a foundation, your relationship with God on a foundation that's shaky. It's depending on how you feel. It's how you get up feeling in the morning. It's what the circumstances of your life... Because our emotions are based on our thoughts. And when, you're, when, when, you're, when your relationship with God is up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, that's not the sign of a solid foundation. So if that's where you are, this is an opportunity to go back and examine what have I been building my trust in? What am I building my life in? Well, today we're going to look at the second ditch, which is on the other side. And that's the Greeks. This letter was written to the church at Corinth. And Corinth is in the southern part of Greece, a part then which was called Achaia. And the Greeks were known for their philosophies. They still are. And most of the major philosophies that have ever been developed in the world, most of them, not all of them, have had their roots ultimately in the, some of the original Greek philosophers, Plato, Socrates. And I wasn't a Christian when I went to college. I was a philosophy major because I wanted to find out how men smarter than I was decided to, build, to live their lives and what, what the meaning of life was. And so I went through all that intense study and came to the conclusion they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> the difference is I now was more informed about why they didn't know what they were talking about. And so, and the reason is because they're trying to gain an understanding of the meaning of life from within ourselves when we didn't create life. 
the meaning of life can only come from the author of life. The purpose of your car comes from the engineers and designers of the manufacturer of that car. An artist, you look at a painting, and some of the abstract paintings, you look at it and go, now some of you may be interested in abstract art and you may understand it, bless you, but it's always the question, well, I wonder what the artist intended this to mean. Why? Because the only true meaning, understanding of the meaning of that painting can come from the one from whom it came. They give it the meaning. And isn't that then true of life also? The only real purpose for life can be determined by the author of life. And I don't want to burst your bubble. It's not you and it's not me. And so when the philosophers are trying to figure out the meaning of life, they're trying to figure it out. I always look at it this way. We had, our kids used to get, um, uh, one of the pets we would have would be a hamster. And I remember years ago, I, I saw one of these the other day too. What, we should go to the pet store and, you know, you know, little Scruffy didn't like being in the cage all the time because he kept trying to get out. And so what we decided to do is let him out but not let him loose in the house. So we bought, ever see those little plastic balls? where you can unscrew part of it and you can drop Scruffy down in there and you can screw it. Now you can put him down on the floor and he paddles all over the house like this. And he thinks he's experiencing the house. He thinks he, he's experiencing the rug. He thi- and I don't know if Scruffy thinks at all, but I mean, for my example, he thinks he's experiencing the rug and he bumps into the wall. Oh, that wall's hard. He's living in an illusion. Because he's inside this plastic ball, but because he's never been out of this plastic ball, he thinks this is life. He thinks he's free. He thinks he's experiencing our house. He's just experiencing a plastic ball. And when man tries to, when man tries to grasp with his little brain the enormity of reality, that's an infinitely greater illusion than Scruffy was living under. So Paul is here addressing a people that have grown up and been steeped in a culture that values and treasures and elevates the smartest, the most educated minds. And the smarter you are, in fact, what these brilliant people would do is spend their entire life in the the town center. There was a whole area where they would do this, just debating one another. Just for the sake of debating because they enjoy debating each other. And this is the part that really touches me, because that's the atmosphere I was raised in. Not Greek, but I was raised in a household where my, my stepfather was brilliant, graduated from one of the Ivy League colleges at an, at a, and as a teenager, was a brilliant lawyer. Life was a mess, but he was a brilliant man. Hard even to understand some of the things he talked about. And I've worked among lawyers that were absolutely brilliant. I could barely understand their arguments and what they were talking about. And I was raised in, in a family and, and, and to, that valued that. So the first thing I would do if I went into a doctor's office is look for his diploma and find out where... Some of you did that too. Find out where did he go to school. And then I would figure out where that school ranked. I don't know how I'm capable of evaluating it, but based on what I've kind of, the image I've had, you know, if they went to one of these big big uh, uh, medical schools, I'd feel better. But if it was a mail order one, I'm, that's an extreme. <laughs> but, but this is, I'm just telling you, this is the mindset I was raised in. One of the first questions is after me, well, where did you go to school? It wasn't just a casual question. It was, I've got to find out where I fit you in, how much I trust you. This is what I was raised in, and this is what the Greeks were raised in. This is what they were taught, trained to be of value. And Paul comes to them to minister to them the gospel. Now let's go back and look at some of this. Verse 20 again. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom could not come to know God. 
We're not going to take the time there, but just go to Romans chapter 1 and you'll see that spelled out more. What he's saying here, the world, through all of its wisdom and understanding, on its own, can't come to know God. God has to reveal himself. Why? Because God is a spirit. And I don't care how far they send probes into space. They're still not going to run into God. Because <laughs> God's a spirit. I don't care how you could take all the brightest minds that have ever lived and cram all that intelligence into one enormous brain. And I've known some people to think they had that. And they're still not going to get outside that plastic ball with Scruffy. They're still not going to come to understand anything about God unless he reveals it to them. And what Paul is saying is God has chosen to make himself known not by, by university professors, not that they can't know him, but it's not by the exercise of your mind. It's not by some reasoning process. It's not by learning more information. It's not by reading more books. It's not by anything that your mind can do to improve itself, to study itself. There's nothing the human mind can do. God's chosen to do it this way that can make you know Him. So why build the foundation of your relationship with God? Why build the foundation of your life on the wisdom that you obtain? on the knowledge that you attain. Now, don't misunderstand me. You go into chapter 2, Paul talks about a wisdom that God gives. I'm not saying don't go to college. I'm not saying don't get educated. But put it in the right perspective. Because what I've had to realize is all the education I've had, all the training I've had, didn't bring me closer to God. In fact, I've had to overcome a lot of it to get closer to Him. Because with all that knowledge and with all that wisdom comes something else interwoven in it. It's called pride. Because I understand certain things, because I've studied certain things, I still sometimes have to deal with pride. <laughs> we were on vacation earlier this year and we were away somewhere and... and um, and there were a bunch of people eating around us, and I, you know, I've forgotten, I don't want to go into all the details of it, but I'm sitting there having a wonderful dinner with my wife, and, you know, and, and we're in a, in a restaurant where I would have assumed people would, not necessarily dress up with a suit, but, you know, look decently, and people are coming in like slobs. And I kind of look at them and say, oh, my goodness. And I hear God speak to me as clear as I've ever heard. He says, you're a, he says, you're a snob. And I knew it wasn't my wife saying that, although she might have agreed. I'm, and it stunned me. I'm a snob. But the evidence was right there because I know what I've just been thinking. And when God speaks that, there's no argument or debate. It's like, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I did, and I began to realize because I was raised in a society, a certain level of society, I was raised a certain way, that I was in, it was indoctrinated that, 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 that better people do these things. And that's not how God sees us at all. God's not impressed with whether I wear a nice suit or I don't wear a suit. God's not impressed with whether you have good table manners. It's good to have good table manners. It's nice to dress well. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But God's not impressed with that. And that doesn't make you a better person in God's eyes or not as good a person in God's eyes because God doesn't see us that way. But it began to open my eyes more and more to how I was raised and the training I had and realized, then I began to see how much I rely on understanding and wisdom, my own wisdom and the wisdom of other people. Well, you may say, well, I don't do that. I don't, you know, I don't consider myself very wise. I don't consider myself very smart. Fine, let's follow me out. All right. Because the third thing God says in here, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God... The world through wisdom did not come to know God. It pleased God 
through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So the Jews trust in signs. God chose not to use it by a sign. The Greeks trust in wisdom and their understanding. God chose to, chose to use something to foolishness. And to the world we live in is foolishness. And the method God chose to use was the preaching of the word which is then believed. So the road that's safe, on the one side, the ditch is I'm trusting my life in things that I see, signs and wonders and God proving himself and demonstrating himself and coming through. Well, I don't do that one, so I jerk the reel to the other side and end up in the other side, which is I have to understand everything before I accept it. And God says that's just as wrong because they're both trusting in everything, something that's not me. So what is it that God chooses? He chooses believing in something that's foolish, which is simply the cross of Christ preached and declared. You mean just believing that? Just saying, yes, I choose to believe that is enough? That doesn't make sense. Oh, I'm over in this ditch. It doesn't make sense. Well, Prove to me it's true. That's just the other side. God chose something that everybody could do. You don't have to be a graduate of a doctor's degree from Yale. In fact, that may get in your way. But you can still be saved. You don't have to see miraculous things, although God will do those things, to get saved. It's simply hearing the word of the cross and believing it, choosing. And that's foolishness to the world. It's too simple. So we're going to look today at this other ditch. So because, but I'm, you know, I don't do that. I wasn't raised the way you were, Pastor. I don't, you know, I don't check diplomas on walls, and I don't, you know, those things don't affect me. I'm just, you know, you know, I'm I'm the slob that would have walked in there, not dressed the way you were, you know, you know, whatever it is, you know. Oh yeah, but we all do this. We all get into this ditch because this ditch isn't just what degrees you have. This ditch is this ditch is that in order to tr- believe something, I have to understand it. I'll understand. I'll believe it if I understand it, and that's the other ditch. All right. If it fits within something I can understand, are you ready for this one? If it makes sense to me, then I'll believe it. But if that doesn't make sense to me, there's no way I'm going to believe that. And underneath that is, I hear what God's Word says, I hear what God's saying to me, but I have to understand it. It has to make sense to me. It has to fit within what I'm expecting. It has to fit within my rationale or else I reject it. And our mind's built that way. I taught you when I taught renewing the mind a number of years ago that your mind is a gateway to what gets down inside of your spirit and what comes back up out of your spirit. That's why Paul says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the renewing of our mind. What we're talking about here is, so your mind does affect, your understanding does affect, but your heart can go around your mind once you renew it to the Word of God. All right. And with this thinking, whatever does not line up with my understanding is foolishness. I will only trust in and yield to whatever I can understanding. And again, wisdom and understanding are good in the right places, but they're not the foundation of our faith in God. Turn me to Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 17. Excuse me, it's Ephesians, it should be 4.17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And how do they walk? By the word, walk means live their life. In the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated or separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So the the brightest mind the most educated, intelligent mind of someone that doesn't know Christ 
is ignorant of God. Because you cannot come to know God by your mind. You cannot come to know God by understanding Him or even understanding the gospel. It's received by faith, first of all, and once begins to give you understanding. But He won't give you understanding in order to trust Him. And this is, that's why. I'll, we'll explain that in a minute. Having their understanding darkened, that means they're walking in darkness. This is why the world cannot figure God out. So don't try to explain the things of God to somebody that's an unbeliever. They're not capable of understanding it until they believe. With God, you believe first, then you get understanding. Well, the way we were trained, we understand so that we can believe. But when you have to understand before you believe, your trust is not in the one you're believing. Your trust is in your understanding. And this is what's the important thing to understand here. (laughs) We want to understand first, and then we'll trust God. But when when I have to understand first in order to trust God, I'm acting as God. Because I'm saying, if, I, if it meets my understanding, then I'll believe it. God says, you believe it just because I said it. Because that then says something about your trust in me. And then I'll give you the understanding. And so here Paul is telling us, he says, the Gentiles, those are people that have no covenant relationship with God. They have no basis of trusting Him. They're walking in the futility. Futility means no matter how hard you try, you're not going to get there. Futile means no no matter what effort I put into it, I stand no chance of achieving it. They're walking in the futility of their mind. In other words, the, the mind's effort to understand the things of God and to obey God and to walk in God, the mind's effort, trusting in the mind's effort, is futile. It cannot do it. Walking in the futility of their mind, having their minds darkened, that means they don't see the light, they don't see the truth. And their hearts alienated from the life of God, separated from the life of God. Why? Because they have to understand Him in order to receive Him. Now what's interesting, because back in the 18th century, there was an explosion of what's called the Age of Reason, where as they came out of the the Dark Ages and there was a renaissance of art and all kinds of learning, there was also a renaissance of science. There was an explosion of scientific understanding, and you had people like Isaac Newton discovering gravity, you know, the apple that fell on his head and all that stuff. But those early men... Of, of science, they didn't see science and God as something that was conflicting or exclusive. They didn't see science or understanding as something that somehow excluded God. And I, in fact, I, Sir Isaac Newton was a devout Christian. Jonathan Edwards, who was in this country, he wasn't a scientist, but he was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant scholar. And he was, he was, the, he was the, 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 the spark that led the first great awakening. And he had no problem with science and God mixing together. So that attitude that we have today, that if you're going to be a scientist, you can't believe in God, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so, because what that does is say, if I don't understand it, then it, it's not true. Which is really, and I don't want to offend anybody, but arrogant. The only things that exist are things we're capable of understanding. And God just looks at us and smiles. Well, let's go to the beginning of all this. Let's go to, to um, Genesis chapter 3. You see, when we have to understand the things of God in order to receive them, then what we're really doing is making God subject to us. And we're violating the first commandment. 
because we're having a God other than He. Now, I'm not going to back over the, the background here. You know the background, but God has told them they could eat of any tree in this garden. He created this garden of, of delight, the Garden of Eden. He put his man and his woman in that garden and says, enjoy it. In fact, some translations said he commanded them to enjoy it. Eat of every tree. Enjoy it. I made it for you to enjoy. But there's one tree you can't eat of. It's in the middle of the garden. There's two of them there. There's a tree of eternal life, and there's a tree of the knowledge, of the knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of that one because the day you eat of that one, literally it says in the Hebrew, in dying you will die. Great, everything's going great. We go to chapter 3. And the serpent was more cunning and crafty than any beast of the field. The fact that he's cunning means he's not dealing with things straight on which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's he doing? He's tempting her to question what God said. So what's established now is God has created this woman, God has separated her from him, placed them in this garden of delight, and given them the one commandment. I mean, it's simple, just one thing. So that their foundation of their existence is on obedience to him, to what he said. Just one commandment. Do whatever you want, just don't eat that tree. So what does Satan come to do? Notice how he comes. He gets her, he's tempting her to question God's commandment. Has God said? Did God really say that? Because what, what organ in your body do you use to question things? Your mind. So he's, he's deceptive here. Remember what a deceiver is. They're never after what it looks like they're after. A pickpocket doesn't come up and say, would you hold your coat, please, because I'd like to get your wallet I'm back here. No, they'll come and brush against you somewhere else, draw your attention somewhere else so they can take your wallet. He was deceptive. He was a deceiver. So what it, he wanted her to think he was after was not what he was really after. He says, has God really said... He wants to get, because the moment you begin to question God, now you begin to move into the realm of your reason. Has God indeed said, you shall need of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, now here's, she, here's where she falls into a mistake. Somehow she thinks she's responsible for defending God. Go back and read chapter 1 and 2. Nowhere did God command them to defend him. And he doesn't need us to defend him today. You'll get sucked by the enemy into distractions by trying to defend God and defend God's word. God doesn't need to be defended. He just wants to be obeyed. And so she starts to defend God by... And the moment she answers him, she gives him a place to speak. He has no dominion in that garden. That dominion's been given to that man and to that woman. In a court of law, you cannot speak unless the judge recognizes you. Even though you're a participant in the court. You have to ask permission to approach the bench. You have to ask permission to speak in court. And if he grants it to you, then you have the right to speak within the certain boundaries of the rules of evidence. Satan had no authority in that garden. The only way he could get that authority was for that man or woman to give it to him. And the moment she answered him... She gave him standing to speak in that garden. She recognized a right for him to be there that God never gave him. And, and you're not... When, when you go around answering him, you're giving him space to speak in your life. The best way you can frustrate him is ignore him. He loves to be talked about. Oh, do you know what the devil's doing? He loves that. It feeds his ego. Instead of just looking at him, oh, it's you. So she begins to answer him. She begins to defend God.
And she said, yes, but the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, verse 3, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He starts in whether God really meant what he said. Question the foundation on which their lives were established. And once she begins to question it, now that opens a door for him to take her because she's now in her mind. She's trying to deal with this devil with her mind and with her understanding. And that's what many of us do. We try to outwit him, outthink him. The Bible never tells you to do that. You're trying to shoot with an empty gun. Whereas the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. So the moment she begins to reason with him, she's in his territory. And this is what his goal was. His goal was to get them to move from simply obeying God, trusting in and standing on what God said and obeying what God said, to move it, to begin to exercise their own independent reasoning about what God said. They're still talking about whether to do what God said or not. See, this is what's deceptive. They're still talking about whether to obey God or not or what God really meant. They're still talking about the Word of God, but she's debating with Satan what God meant and how to carry it out instead of just doing it. Jesus says there's two foundations. One will last. He who hears the Word and does the word. The one that doesn't last is he who hears the word, talks about the word, has bumper stickers of the word, has Bibles with the word, listens to tapes of the word or CDs of the word, talks about the word all the time, but doesn't do the word. So here they're talking about the word of God. Wow, this is great. They're having a little Bible study. I wonder what God meant about this, and I wonder what God meant about this. And while they're talking about it, she's using her mind to understand what God really meant. Because look what he says to her. Satan says, God knows. In other words, God has a knowledge he's not given to you. God knows that in the day... That, that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what Satan's now getting her, because of her, she's now depending on her own ability to understand things, she's now open to his deception. And he's now saying to her, he's saying, what, here's, God's real motive is this. God's trying to keep something from you. See, this is the beginning of religion. Through their own, through her effort to understand God by her mind, she's opened herself up to Satan to begin to talk to her about what God's really like. And instead of this wonderful, generous, loving God, now he's beginning to say, He's cheating you out of something. There's something God's holding back from you. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you're going to gain an understanding at his level that he didn't give you. He held it back from you. Because you're going to now know good and evil just like him. Let me ask you something. Is the knowledge of good and evil what makes God God? No. He says you'll be like God knowing good and evil. God had made them in his image. He'd already made them like him. And given them this foundation of his one commandment. Enjoy it. Just don't eat of that one tree. I believe, this is my personal belief, that the reason God told them that tree they were not to eat of is because He knew them. He knew how He made them. He did not make them capable of handling the knowledge of good and evil on their own. You see, if you're perfectly obedient to God, you don't need to understand good and evil. He does. 
You just do what he says to do. He'll keep you from the evil and keep you in the good. It's when we exercise our own independent judgment of what's good and evil, our own independent judgment of what's right and wrong. And we take God's word as an indication, as an idea, but we're the ultimate decider of what's good and evil in our life. We're the ultimate decider of what's good and evil in our society. That's exactly what he was tempting them to do, and that's exactly what she did. Exercise her own independent wisdom and judgment about what was good and evil. And that's the same temptation underneath things to us. I wonder if God really meant that. I wonder if I can really trust God. I wonder what he really meant there. I wonder what God's really after here. I can't begin to know what God's really after except by what he says about himself in the word. We're not going to have time to go over there, but I want to talk to you a little bit about Job because Job is a great example of this. Job is a very, the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written. And Job can be a little hard to struggle with because it deals with this issue of suffering. Why do righteous people suffer? And let me give you a clue to understanding Job. I don't believe it answers that question. But there's a debate that goes on. Job, in case you don't know it, you need to read it sometime. Job has the worst day you could ever imagine. I mean, everything's going, God God basically says to Satan, you know, what are you doing up here walking around? Have you seen my, my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He's choose evils. He serves me. And Satan says he doesn't tempt you. He only serves you for what he gets out of this. And so in one day, and God doesn't do this to him, Satan does it to him. And one day... Job loses his family, except for his wife. He loses his kids. He loses his house. He loses everything he has. He loses his standing in society. And then the next day or so, he loses his health. And all of this has happened. I mean, he's, he's shaken now. His foundation is being shaken. And his dear friends show up. He's got three wonderful friends. And they show up to console Job. Pray that if you ever go through a difficult time, you don't have friends like Job had. But we've all had them. And they come and they're, I believe they were sincere, try, sincerely trying to console Job. And the way they try to console Job is by figuring out why he's going through it. They're trying to come, listen carefully, they're trying to come to an understanding of why this happened. Just as Satan tempted Eve in the garden to understand what God really meant, what was God really after there. So these three men, and Job joins in it, they have this debate that goes on for about 30, almost 30 verses, certain chapters, about why God's, why this has happened, and, and in the middle of it, I don't have time to go there, but Job gets angry at God. He never sins. He never rejects God. He never curses God and rejects God. But he gets angry at God. And I'm not judging Job. But at one point, it's around, there's, there's a, some verses in, verse, in chapter 9 and some verses in chapter 23, where at one point he gets so frustrated, he says, Oh, this is so aggravating because if you were any other person, I could haul you into court. And you would have to give an account of my complaint against you. Now think about what he's saying there. He's saying, God, I'm angry because I can't find a a sheriff who can serve you with a summons. Because if I could, I'd want to haul you into court so you would have to explain and give answers to my complaint. Now although God says about him that, that Job was a good man, and eschewed evil, there was a self-righteousness in Job that comes out. And in fact, Elihu points it out to him around chapter 30. Because think about that attitude. God, this isn't fair. I don't understand why I'm being treated this way. And what's really unfair is I can't do anything about it. If anybody else did this to me, I could bring him into court and we would stand before a third-party judge who would decide which one of us was right or wrong. Now, that's one thing with your neighbor. It's a different thing with God. Because what he's saying is, God, you and I are on the same level. I have a complaint against you. 
It's okay to get frustrated, God. God can handle this. But there was an underlying attitude he had that, that I was, he was being cheated out of something, and it was because he couldn't understand why. And see, when your mind can't figure out answers, you'll get upset. And you'll either get mad at God because you can't figure the answer out because you ascribe to Him some motive that you assume is bad, just as Eve did. Because our mind is made in such a way that it wants to connect all the dots in that little picture. Remember children's things, you know, you form pictures by going from dot, connect the dots, one dot, one dot. Our mind is built to do that. Something happens that rocks our boat, that shakes our foundation. Our mind immediately tries to kick in. Why? Because we've trained our mind and we've learned our whole life to rely on our understanding. I've got to figure out why. If I can figure out why, that'll comfort me a little bit. This is why when catastrophes happen or unexpected disasters happen, we want to find out some reason for it because if we can understand everything, if I can fit everything into a slot, then that somehow makes me feel more safe and secure. I realized this about myself one time when I realized I had a habit when I found out somebody had passed away. My first question was, how old were they? And I mean, why do I want to know how old they were? Then I realized, because if they're at a ripe old age, which by the way gets further down the line every year, if they're a ripe old age, then, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, you come to the end of your time. But when someone dies at a very early age, that doesn't fit into this pattern. So I have to, we have to come up with some other way of understanding why. Amen. Because if I can understand why, that'll make me feel more secure. Because if there was a reason why that happened to them, then I can figure out how to avoid that so it won't happen to me. In other words, my security and my well-being is in how well I can understand what's going on around me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not, rely not, trust not, rest not in your own understanding. It doesn't mean we can't gain understanding. We can't be relying on that for our security. And this is what was going on in Job. And then around chapter 36 or someone like Elihu begins to speak up for God. And then finally at 38, God says, move aside, son. I want to cross-examine this witness. Let's see if we got time to look there. We don't. Basically, God takes over by saying, all right, you wanted to ask some questions. Let me ask some questions first. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know its measurements? I mean, batters him one question after question after question for two full chapters. And finally, Job gets hooked, upset, and says, well, who can ever answer you? But see, he hasn't broken yet. So God picks up again. And finally, at the end of that, if you read the last chapter, chapter 41 of Job, Job says, I was a man who spoke without understanding. I spoke foolishness. And it's neat because he says at the end, he says, before I heard about you, now I see you. I have a greater revelation of God's answer to all of Job's frustration. God's answer to all Job's crying out and trying to come with understanding. God never gave him answers. God's answer is, this is who I am. He brought Job back in line by simply saying, I'm God. I'm your creator. Not just you're the creator, creator of everything else. Can you trust me? Can you just plain trust me because of who I am? Not because I do things you understand or don't understand. Not because I perform what you want me to perform. Can you just trust me because I am the Lord and when Job saw that, all of that stuff broke in him. And he said, I spoke foolishness. Before I only heard about you, now I see who you really are. And then he goes on to say, and I see what a wretch I really am on my own. Remember Isaiah? We studied him about worship. God revealed himself. And he saw God. He says, oh, my goodness, look at God. And then you realize, 
woe is me. And at that point, it's only when we see God for who he really is, as God, and then see ourselves for who we really are, can we really receive the fullness of his grace and his mercy. And that's the foundation on which the gospel is built. And that's what we're going to begin to look at next time. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these words and look in your word and hear these stories, we pray now that your spirit would take what we've heard and begin to work this into our hearts and lives. Begin to open the eyes of our understanding that we would see you for who you are. That we don't have to understand you. In fact, we can't. We can't figure you out. In fact, we're not to. We're just to trust you. Just to trust who you are. So, Father, I pray for every one of us here, whatever it is we're going through right now, whatever, wherever we may be in our walk with you, that you would open our eyes to begin to see what it is we've been trusting in and relying on. That we may let go of those things and just lean back and simply put our trust in who you are and let you catch us and let you hold us up and let you sustain us. And we thank you for that grace in Jesus' name.